We're in Ecclesiastes chapter 2. Please turn with me in your Bibles. Ecclesiastes chapter 2. A question for you this morning as we prepare for the word is, what am I surrendered to? What am I pursuing? What am I following? And we all have surrendered to something, some passion, some priority, and hopefully uh, we're living a surrendered life to Jesus Christ. So let's pray together. Jesus, we thank you that you pursue us, that you want to be in relationship with us, and that you ask us to, to follow you, to surrender to you. But we also know that the things of this world easily get our attention and our affection. So Lord, help us to see where true value lies. Would you please pour out your spirit and bless our time in your word. In Jesus' name, amen. In life, sometimes you have a value test. If you have to deal with water, water is tested to see uh, of the value of the water or the quality of, of the water. If you're dealing with uh, minerals, especially uh, when it comes to, to jewelry, there's a testing of gold to see what's, what's the quality, what's the value uh, of that. And what we find in the book of Ecclesiastes is that Solomon's doing a value test. He's saying, where is substance, where is meaning, where is value? He's showing us what to do by what not to do. He's showing us where emptiness lies so we can understand where true substance and meaning lies. We have to read the book of Solomon with the end in view, the last two verses. This is the conclusion of the whole matter, that you would fear God and keep his commandments. Solomon literally spends 12 chapters to show us why a relationship with God has to be our priority. It's autobiographical. Solomon has gone through these things. He's drifted from his relationship with the Lord. He's tried to fill up his tank, his bucket, through the things of this world. And he shares those things with us in chapter 2. I said in my heart, come now and I will test you with mirth. Therefore, enjoy pleasure. But surely this was also vanity. Solomon makes the choice. He's choosing different things to pursue, and he says, I made the decision in my heart. I'm going to test you with mirth. Now, mirth means pleasure or amusement. Anybody use the word mirth in their normal daily conversation? And if you did use the word mirth, would you come to the conclusion of pleasure and amusement? Yeah. I went out for lunch today, and it was absolute mirth, right? So mirth, what does it mean? Pleasure and amusement. So he's putting his heart to pleasure. He's putting his heart to amusement, to enjoy things. And what's his conclusion? His conclusion is that it's vanity. In this section, he's looking at the value of pleasure, palaces, position, and possessions. Oftentimes we do look for, to pleasure to fulfill us, don't we? We look to the next thing. If I can just have this vacation... If I can have this gratification, then I'm going to be satisfied and I'm truly going to find meaning. Now, is all pleasure bad? No, all pleasure is not bad. God created us to be able to enjoy things and to give him glory to it. The problem is, is when pleasure becomes our idol. Pleasure becomes the reason for our existence and we're simply looking for one thing after the next. In the news this week in Connecticut, it was a tough week in New Haven. You've got Green New Haven, which is a park just in the shadows of Yale University, 114 overdoses. 
76 in a 24-hour period, apparently some people went through this park and started handing out synthetic marijuana, K2. And people are taking this marijuana and overdosing, the paramedics and the police dealing with this. I heard a doctor in an interview say that they had people coming in three times in one day from three different overdoses. They would would overdose on the K2, go to the hospital, get released, go back to the park, overdose again, right? What's the attraction to the addiction of drugs? I've got to get another fix. I've got to get pleasure. But the problem is, is it leaves you longing for more, right? You know, sexual sin. There's some pleasure that is involved there, but then it leaves you longing for more. Please understand that there is pleasure in sin, but it's only for a season. And the Bible tells us that. And then it brings destruction in our lives. It it brings a wrecking ball into our lives. There's a song by the band One Republic, and the chorus says, everything that's wrong feels so right, and everything that's right feels so wrong. And I thought, what a lie. You know, what a lie from the pit of hell, right? That the wrong things, the sinful things, that there's pleasure in those things, but doing right, that's just no fun. What a fuddy-duddy if you follow righteousness. What does the scripture tell us? That sinful pleasure leads to destruction, but godliness leads to life. Now, godliness is not easy on the front end. It's difficult on the front end, but it's going to lead to life. In Hebrews, it's talking about Jesus, and it says that he was anointed with gladness above all of his fellows. I think Jesus was the most joyful person on the planet. Why? Because he hated wickedness and he loved righteousness. Righteousness is going to lead to life, but this chase of pleasure, this chase of of pursuit is going to leave us empty. And it might be a downright sinful pursuit of pleasure. It may be something in and of itself that's not sinful, but we've gotten our eyes off the Lord. And we have to learn from Solomon's experience because he was able to get into the best pleasure that this world had to offer. And he says it's empty apart from a relationship with Christ. So he tries laughter in verse 2. I said of laughter, madness. And of mirth, what does it accomplish? If you're pursuing laughter for satisfaction and meaning, ultimately it's madness. Ultimately it still leaves you empty. Pleasure, what does it accomplish? What have we really gained with pleasure? Verse three, I searched in my heart how to gratify my flesh with wine while holding my heart with wisdom and how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the sons of men to do under heaven all the days of their lives. This is an interesting paradox that Solomon's trying to walk here. He says, I'm gonna try to gratify my flesh with wine. I want to take off the edge a little bit with, with wine, but I don't want to lose sight of wisdom. I'm still, I'm still going to hold on to, to wisdom while I'm trying to process what's done under the sun. And what does God teach on alcohol from God's word? I encourage you to study it for yourself, but primarily the Lord says, don't be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. So anytime as a believer we're drunk, we're in sin because it inhibits the Holy Spirit's ability to lead us. Also, we're told to not cause a brother or sister to stumble through drinking. So if you're drinking and that causes another brother or sister in Christ to stumble, uh, that is sin. You're not to violate your own conscience. God may put on your conscience to, to not drink, and you need to, to honor that, 
uh, before the Lord. But there is freedom biblically to drink in, in moderation if it fits inside of, of those categories. The problem is, is that Solomon's looking to alcohol to gratify his flesh. He's saying, I can't get through this under the sun type of living without alcohol. And that, that's a problem, you know. If that's where you find yourself and saying, yeah, I need this to be able to get through my days, God would want to fill that. It's not going to ultimately uh, satisfy. It's not going to work as well as a person thinks of, of I'm going to gratify my flesh with alcohol or, or some other kind of substance, but I'm also going to hold on to, to wisdom at the same time. We really can't do that. We're not going to effectively be able to, to walk that road. So now what does he focus his attention on? Palaces. I made my works great. I built myself houses and planted myself vineyards. I made myself gardens and orchards and planted all kinds of fruit trees in them. Notice the amount of I that's in this statement. He's building all these things for himself. You know, his, his purpose in building these things is not to glorify the Lord and to build up others. He's not saying, I want my house, I want my garden to be a blessing to others. I want this to be a refuge where people can come and hear about the Lord. This is part of his pursuit outside of a relationship with God to try to find satisfaction. And we do this. And this might be a little bit easier to fall into than the sinful pleasures because it's just this little trap that says, hey, you know what, just start on this project. You know, have, have fun, fun building. But apart from our relationship with Christ, it's never good enough, isn't it? You know, it's never done. It's, it's never completed. As soon as you get one portion of it done, then, then there's another part of it to do. We've kind of become overcome with this in our, our culture with all of the do-it-yourself uh, projects that, that take place, the, the, the fixer-upper type of, of programs. It's so easy to watch uh, fixer-upper and be so discontent with your house at the end of this, right? You know, that is not reality. They are cashing in on our lust for our homes to be improved, aren't they? They're making money on flipping the houses. They're making money on the TV show. Their full-time job is those houses, and we got to go to work, right? It's not real life, and it's not going to satisfy. It's not going to fulfill us if we're looking to a project in, in the work of our hands to be our worship and to, to be our, our satisfaction. That can be a difficult one to, to learn. In verse 6, I made myself water pools for which to water the growing trees of the grove. This is something that Solomon was proud of. This is probably not just your, your normal drip irrigation. Right? This is something that's spectacular. He, he gets the, the water to go from the water pools to the growing trees. So you can picture this is just the state-of-the-art palace and the state-of-the-art garden, some of the best that the world has to offer, and he didn't even have to get his hands dirty. Verse 7, I acquired male and female servants and had servants born in my house. Solomon was not a do-it-yourselfer, right? He had the idea, and then he had all of these servants that were doing the work for him, and he goes from palaces to possessions. Yes, I had great possessions of herds and flocks. Then all were in Jerusalem before me. And did possessions in and of themselves satisfy? Have you noticed what you strive to gain, you strive to maintain? 
And sometimes when you didn't have a lot of stuff, how simple your life was. I remember when, when Amber and I got married uh, 17 years ago, uh, coming up here in, in September. We were a young couple, just starting out, didn't have a whole lot, rented an apartment, and looking back, it was so simple, right? If something broke at the apartment, I didn't have to deal with it. You just, you just call the apartment complex, and you're like, hey, hey, this is broken, and they come and fix it. We didn't have a washer and dryer. You, you know, you go to the laundromat, or there's, there was a washer and dryer at the uh, apartment complex. You know, th- things are a blessing if you can keep them in the right perspective, but they don't necessarily add substance to your life, right? They don't, they don't add this, this deep sense of, of, of fulfillment. And the more things that we possess, a lot of times, the more our lives get complicated and these things begin to own us. In verse 8, I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the special treasures of kings and of the provinces. Solomon was insanely wealthy. He has silver and, and gold. And he's collecting the silver and gold. God warned the kings through Moses, saying, don't amass to yourself women, money, and horses, because he wanted the kings depending upon the Lord. Solomon failed in all three areas, didn't he? And his heart drifted from from the Lord. So this is intentional, and it was something that was self-focused. He's gathering this money uh, for, for himself, and he wanted special treasures, We see the queen of Sheba coming to visit him and and bringing him great, great gifts. Because of his wisdom, people would come from all over to hear him and and they would bring these gifts. So you can imagine the kind of collection of things that he had. I acquired male and female singers, the delights of the sons of men, and musical instruments of all kind. He had slaves where their job was to simply sing. And they were the best singers that the world had to offer. He was doing American Idol back when it was Israel Idol, right? <laughs> he had the, the best of entertainment. So I became great and excelled more than all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also, my wisdom remained with me. So he has position. He's excelled beyond anyone that was before him in Jerusalem. His kingdom was reaching farther than his father David. This is also something that we easily fall into to try to find meaning, is position. We want people to think well of us. This is the the pride of life. I don't think we grow out of this as adults, if we're honest. You know, we see kids struggle with this, but we also struggle with it as, as as an adult. If someone comes up to us and says, well, what do you do for a living, right? You find a lot of meaning in that position, but ultimately does it satisfy? Do we look at the people of this world that have powerful positions and apart from Christ, are they satisfied? Are they longing for more? I also heard an interview with Musk, the CEO of Tesla Cars, and apparently he's had a really tough year, and he said he's working 120 hours a week and can't sleep without Ambien, and when he opened up and was honest with the media, then stock went down 7%. That's a lot of pressure, isn't it? Doesn't sound like that position is satisfied. I bet he's got a pretty big paycheck, don't you? But is it worth it? 
You know, is it, is it satisfying? Is a position in and of itself going to fulfill that longing in your heart? Verse 10 is quite a statement. Whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I did not withhold my heart from any pleasure. For my heart rejoiced in all of my labor, and this was my reward from all of my labor. So anything that he wanted, he was able to attain, but yet he still wasn't satisfied. Though he is rejoicing in his labor, don't you think there's more to labor than simply being able to rejoice in it? For Solomon to build all of these things and simply be thankful that he was able to do it, couldn't there be more to labor? Couldn't our work be centered around worship and and glorifying the Lord? His rejoicing doesn't go too deep because look at verse 11. Then I looked on all the works of my hands. Then I looked on all the works that my hands had done and on the labor in which I had toiled and indeed all was vanity and grasping for wind. There was no profit under the sun. That's his conclusion of these things that we've just looked at. It's, it's meaningless. There's no profit. It's, it's vanity. It's grasping for wind. I want you to lay hold of that phrase, grasping for wind, because it's this hungry desire for more. It's this toiling. And we know when we're toiling. We know when we're striving. And we know when we're resting in the peace of the Lord. And this doesn't mean that you don't work. Or it doesn't mean that you don't ever try to create something or, or build something. It doesn't mean that you don't ever go on vacation. But it's the attitude of the heart. It's in my heart. Am I, am I chasing or pursuing these things to be able to have meaning? And you can't ever grasp the wind. When we're in that place of toiling, we're always going to come up on the losing end. So verse 12, he turns his attention to wisdom, the value of wisdom. Then I turned myself to consider wisdom, madness, and folly. For what can the man do who secedes the king only what he has already done? So the new king, what's he going to do that the first king hasn't already done? If there's a new president, is he really going to do anything that prior presidents haven't already done? Then I saw that wisdom excels folly as light excels darkness, or he does come to the conclusion that wisdom is better than foolishness, that there's benefits to to wisdom just as light is better than darkness. The wise man's eyes are in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. What does that mean? Your eyes are in your head. This means that you're thinking about decisions before you make them. That's wisdom, but the fool just walks right into darkness, yet I myself perceived that the same event happens to them all. So I said in my heart, as it happened to the fool, it also happened to me. And why was I then more wise? Then I said in my heart, this also is vanity. So the value test of wisdom is emptiness if you are looking to wisdom to somehow guarantee a better result in your life. What do I mean? So if we're in a place of, I've got to live wise, I've got to live righteously, and we're tying expectation to that wisdom, we're going to get really frustrated, because that's what Solomon's at. He's like, here I've lived wise, and here's a guy that's a fool, but the same bad things happen to both of us. Do you know that people that live tremendously godly, wise lives, 
get cancer just like someone who's been tremendously foolish, right? And sometimes that's, that's frustrating to us. You know, I, I look at my dad's life. He's 66 years old. He's had cancer twice. He now has Parkinson's. He's not a perfect guy by any means. He's a sinner saved by grace, but he has been a wise man and he's loved the Lord and he's followed the Lord and this is what the Lord's allowed, allowed in his life, right? But then there's other people that spend their lives in drugs and spend their lives in alcohol and spend their lives sleeping around and they don't have Parkinson's. They, don't have, they haven't had you know, cancer twice. And if, if I was tying wisdom to a guaranteed result that life's gonna be easier, do you see how you could stumble, right? And I think a lot of people, a lot of times we do this and we go, God, I'm following you. I'm trying to be wise. And yet I got laid off in my job right alongside the fool. You know, the economy crashed and they just let us all go. They couldn't, couldn't afford to, to pay us. So if we've made wisdom the idol and we're pursuing wisdom and we're living a, a wise life because we're wanting a different result here on earth, that not, may not be the case. Why do we live a, a wise life? Because God loves us. Because Jesus died for us. And walking in the light as he's in the light encourages our fellowship with Christ. It's all about our relationship with Christ and the outcome's up to the Lord. Amen? It's like, God, I, you're God. I'm, I'm not God. And that can be hard to, to remember. I think sometimes young people, we, we sell this to them as they're teenagers and, they, and we say, you know, live, live a godly life and then things are gonna be easier for you as an adult. Like, like if you're sexually pure, then you're guaranteed to have greater sex in marriage, right? And we kind of tell these kids these type of things and that may be the case, but it may not be the case. Like God may call them to sexually purity and they may not ever get married, you know, what happens to that 16-year-old where you said, hey, commit yourself to sexual purity and God is going to bring you this amazing person in your life and that amazing person never comes and God allows singleness in, in, in their life. Is that why God's calling them to sexual purity? No, he's calling them to sexual purity because that's a great way to live in your relationship with Christ. You're never going to re regret that in your relationship with Christ, but if you're tying an expectation to that, that may or may not happen, you're going to set yourself up for, for failure. So, so to worship wisdom, to worship morality outside of a relationship with Christ, we miss the point. We miss the, the motivation. The motivation is, is Jesus. So it goes on in verse 16, for there's no more remembrance of the wise than of the fool, since all that now is will be forgotten in the days to come. And how does a wise man die as the fool? So the wise and the fool are both forgotten and they both die the same way. And that frustrates Solomon because he's got an earthly expectation tied to his wisdom. He's like, why would I live wise if everybody's gonna forget me? Time's a respecter of no one. If we went into children's ministry today and talked to our third graders, do you think they would know who Billy Graham is? Not a chance, right? Billy Graham is awesome. Billy Graham preached the gospel to more people than anyone else in human history. God used him in a phenomenal way, but yet our third graders aren't aware of who Billy Graham is. Time causes you to forget the wise person. Time 
causes you to forget the foolish person. Thankfully, Billy Graham was not living to be in the memory of third graders, right? He was living for Jesus. And he's saying, I, I want to surrender my life to, to Christ. Here's his conclusion based on this struggle with wisdom. Therefore, I hated life because the work that was done under the sun was distressing to me. For all is vanity and grasping for the wind. All the work is distressing and causing more grasping for the wind. Gets to this place where he hates life because his perspective is under the sun instead of looking at life through a relationship with God and through eternity. As believers, as the child of God, if we come to the conclusion as we perceive the world that I hate life, we've come up with the wrong conclusion. If we look at the glory of heaven and then our response is, I'm so looking forward to heaven that I despise my days here on earth, we've missed the big picture. Let me explain. Paul, the Apostle Paul in Philippians chapter one, he's in prison and he's looking at the possibility of death He says, I am looking forward to going to heaven. That's the right perspective. We should look forward to going to heaven. But he also said, I want to stay here on earth. He loved this life too. See, to love heaven doesn't mean you have to hate this life. And he said, I want to stay here on earth so that I can bear fruit for God. I can bear fruit in your life. He saw purpose for the days here on earth. God has created you. He sent his son to die for you. He has purpose and value for our days. And so we should love this life and long for heaven. Does that make sense? To say, God, I know that this life is hard. I know that this life is difficult, but I know you've got a purpose for my days. A disturbing reality is the suicide rate is more than, than double in the United States than the homicide rate. Think about that for for just a moment. More than double. Somehow the enemy is really lying to us to cause us to be hopeless, to hate our lives, to say, I would take my own life. Guys, this is not an issue outside of the church. This is an issue inside of the church. This happens in believers' lives. Or believers choose to to take their their own life. I have no doubt that some of you this morning are considering suicide and thoughts of, of suicide. And know that God loves you, that he created your life. You're made in the image of God. That Jesus died for you, that your life doesn't belong to you. And there's a cultural mind shift change when it comes to, to suicide. There's something very different about putting a dog to sleep and for a person to choose assisted suicide. Assisted suicide is legal here in Colorado. When someone's terminally ill, a doctor can then say, you can, can go ahead and take your life. Our life doesn't belong to us. It's up to the Lord. So God chooses our days. In Belgium, there's mobile units to come and perform assisted suicide. If a doctor won't sign off on it, they'll, they'll send a, a mobile unit. You can call up a mo- mobile unit. It's that type of, of service that, that's being done. See, when we uh, ex- accepted abortion in the womb, we were saying, 
We have control over life. We can choose to take life in, in the womb. Well, now it's being applied to the other end, isn't it? And those times of death and leading up to death, well, we can go ahead and just decide to, to choose to end life. And unfortunately, now it's being decided all the way in between at every age. More and more different age groups are deciding this, this is when I was, was going to choose. And this is my encouragement in this, is that I would hope and pray in our lives and in our church, this wouldn't be a hush-hush topic. That you wouldn't feel shame if you feel suicidal. Because all too often someone is, is suicidal and they don't ever open up and share with anyone. Even inside of the church. If there's any place that we can be honest, it needs to be in the church. We need to be honest about sexual sin and sexual temptation. We want to be honest about suicide. And when we open up and we share with other brothers and sisters in Christ, we're opening up light into the darkness. And God is able to work in, inside of that space. And I would encourage you, if you're in that place, to reach out to someone that you know loves and, and cares for you. Pursue every resource possible. And God's going to do a breakthrough. And he's going to do a work in your life. And life is worth living. Life is worth living. God's got a plan for your life. And see it through to the end. See the adventure through to, to the end for, for his, his glory. But it comes back to this concept of my life is surrendered. My life doesn't belong to me. And so I'm going to love this life. I'm going to love the fact that God has granted this life to me and look forward to eternal life. Verse 19, and who knows whether he'll be wise or a fool, yet he will rule over my labor in which I've toiled, in which I've sown myself, shown myself wise under the sun. This is also vanity. Then I turned my heart and despaired of all labor in which I toiled under the sun. For there is a man whose labor is with wisdom, knowledge, and skill, yet he must leave his heritage to a man who has not labored for it. This is also vanity and great evil. He's looking at the value of labor. And one of the things that disturbs him about labor and work is I've worked so hard my whole life, and then I've got to leave it to one of my sons, and who knows if they're going to be wise or foolish. And in fact, they didn't have to work for it. I've worked so hard to build all these things, and they didn't have to work for it at all. What's ironic about this is Solomon got a pretty good stinking inheritance from a guy named David, right? From, from, from his dad. And Solomon never picked up a sword. He was never in a battle. It was a time of peace because of all of the battles that David fought. But here in his heart, Apart from a relationship with God, he's really bitter about having to pass anything on to his son, right? And that, that's what happens to us when we start to drift from the Lord. Verse 22, for what has a man for all of his labor and for all the striving of his heart, which he has toiled under the sun? What do you get for all the work? What do you get when you're in that grasping for more and toiling and striving? For all his days are sorrowful and his works burdensome. Even in the night, his heart takes no rest. This also is vanity. If we don't have that relationship with Christ, this is going to be our existence, just sorrow and, and burden. And you're working and you're working and you're working. And then you go to bed and your work robs you of sleep. <laughs> like, I, I can't stop thinking about work. And Solomon's like, this is emptiness. This is vanity. Nothing is better for a man that he should eat and drink 
and that his soul should enjoy good in his labor. This also I saw was from the hand of the Lord. So enjoy your labor. Enjoy the fact that, God, I have the health to be able to do this. Enjoy any fruit that comes from it. And then also, I think, as we look throughout the scriptures to Genesis to Revelation, where labor really becomes meaningful is when we do it to God's glory. Whatever your hand finds to do, do wholeheartedly as unto the Lord. But this is one of the takeaways that Solomon comes away with, is enjoy it. Enjoy the labor that God has, has granted. For who can eat or who can have enjoyment more than I? Solomon realizes he should be enjoying life because he has all of these blessings. For God gives wisdom and knowledge and joy to a man who is good in his sight, but to a sinner he gives the work of gathering and collecting that he might give to him who is good before God. This is also vanity and grasping for the wind. You have to understand Solomon's worldview is based through the old covenant because that's what he's living under. If you obey, you're blessed. If you disobey, you're cursed. So his interpretation of that then is if you're living in wisdom and knowledge, then, then God is going to give you good things. But if you're a sinner, then you're going to be stuck gathering and, and collecting. And thankfully, we have the new covenant of God's grace where God blesses us through the finished work of, of Jesus Christ. And it's not this works-based relationship with the Lord. I want to share with you the words of Christ, and it's the ultimate value statement. It's the ultimate value statement as we prepare to take communion this morning. As we're longing to find value in this life, it's not from a selfish life and selfish pursuits, but a surrendered life. So hear this. This is the words of Christ from Matthew 16. Then Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone desires to come after me, if you want to pursue me, if you want to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For the Son of Man will come in glory of his Father with his angels and then he will reward each one according to his works. Jesus says this is where you find life. This is where you find value, is being surrendered to Jesus. To take up your cross, to not try to satisfy yourself, but to deny yourself and say, Jesus, I'm surrendered to you. You're my Lord. Jesus died and rose again to save us of our sins and take control of our lives. Have you experienced in your life that you do a good job of making a mess of yourself? I do a good job of making a mess of me and those that I love. And hopefully we come to a place of saying, I don't want to be in control of my life any longer. I, I don't want to simply be pursuing pleasure and possessions and, and position. I don't want to find meaning in, in work and in wisdom. I want to find meaning in Jesus. I want to be surrendered to Jesus. And as we take communion this morning, it's the ultimate motivation to surrender because Christ, in his grace, he died for us. We're remembering his broken body and his shed blood to where he wins our hearts. The love of Christ compels us. 
So it's not a tough sell to want to follow Jesus. Amen? He is the best thing going, church. He is the best thing going. And if we're wise, we'll run quickly to Christ and say, Christ, I'm surrendered to you. But it is a daily decision and a daily battle. Because our sinful flesh is going to go to the things that we can see. And it's a daily decision to say, Jesus, I'm surrendered to you. Jesus, I'm living for you. If you don't know Christ as your Savior, I want to give you an opportunity this morning to right now, where you're sitting, turn to Christ and say, Jesus, save me. I think one of the things that God uses in our lives to bring us to Jesus for salvation is we discover that everything else is meaningless. Maybe you're going, this is my life. I could have wrote Ecclesiastes chapter 2. I've tried every pleasure. I've tried money. I've tried this. I've tried that. And it's left me completely broken. Are you ready to turn to Christ? To acknowledge your sin before him and believe that he's God, that he died for you and rose again. Say, Jesus, save me. Be the Lord of my life. And if that's where you're at, I'm going to ask you to raise your hand to the Lord. You're not raising it to anyone else. It's not about adjoining a church. It's from your heart saying, Jesus, save me. So let's, let's pray together. Jesus, we thank you for your pursuit of us. We thank you that all these other things cannot satisfy apart from you. You know each heart. You know our hearts. You know those that have never surrendered to you for salvation, to trust you and say, Jesus, save me. So God, would you call them by name? If you're ready to receive Christ, would you just raise your hand and leave it up and I'm gonna lead you in a prayer and we'll just wait for a few moments right where you're sitting. Raise your hand to the Lord. Just wait another moment if you'd like to receive Christ as your Savior. So Lord, we thank you for the opportunity to meditate on the gospel, to meditate upon what you have done for us on the cross. And would you really bless this time of communion? And we love you in Jesus' name.